Hello, and welcome to the Dissident Daughters podcast. I'm your host, Ada, and I'm here deconstructing my Mormon faith and making space for other women like me to do the same. A dissident daughter is someone who actively challenges an established political or religious system, a doctrine, belief, policy, or institution. So that's my purpose in starting this podcast and why I wanted to have a space specifically for women to speak out and speak up. I'm glad you're here. Welcome back to Dissident Daughters. I took a little week off here uh, recently and just had a little break. I, I don't even know why. Maybe I just didn't have anything to talk about. <laughs> but I have lots to talk about today. So I know you guys are probably uh, pretty aware of the SEC story that broke in the last month, right? There has been tons of really good content put out about it that explains it really well, tells all the details really well of like what went down. I highly recommend watching Nemo the Mormons episode about that. It's on YouTube. You can find it. Um, he did an episode with Colby Reddish and it was fantastic. It was very uh, well done. Just really well explained and all of that. Also, Mormonism Live did a really great episode on it as well that I think also just tells the whole story and explains it in a way that you can just totally understand like what exactly happened. Um, so if you haven't already, I do recommend those. But I'm not going to be talking about that today because I think that story has been well covered, definitely very well covered. What I'm going to talk about today is a story that I have not heard one single peep about in the news media, except for through a friend. And the only reason I heard about it through this friend is that her son, uh, okay, let me, let me start, let me start from the beginning. So this friend, she lives around the corner from me and her son was in my Sunday school class. I taught him in Sunday school for years. Well, I guess it would have only been one year because <laughs> they only stay in your class for one year, then they move on. Okay, well, I'm intimately um, acquainted with this family. I also had his older sister in Young Women's when I served in the Young Women's uh, organization. So, love this family. And uh, this, this boy got called on a mission to Cali, Colombia. And... When he got called there, I was just like, are you serious? Like, I I actually didn't think that missionaries got called there. Like, <laughs> it's, it's known as a terribly dangerous part of the world, and especially for white people, because they are particularly sought out when it comes to crimes. So, uh, I've talked to this, this mother of this missionary, at least once in the last six months. He's only been he's only been out about six months, I believe. And I ran into her at the grocery store and we chatted. Um, this was several months ago. And uh, I asked her how he was doing. And she said it was really, really hard. And like she said that when he, when she would call him and, you know, they would do these Zoom calls, which now missionaries can do. That was not a thing when I was on my mission. But she would say that his little his little lip would just start to quiver when he would see her 
and he would just try his hardest not to cry. She also said that it was quite common to hear gunshots in the background as they are chatting. And, you know, I know this mom very well, and she is a nervous Nellie. <laughs> she's a little bit of a stress case, um, and that's not to make fun of her. She's just a very protective mother, right? And I, I'm the same way. I, I would be freak. You know what? If my kid got called to Cali, Columbia, I would not have let him go. Honestly, I, I had already made the decision, like when my kids were younger, that like my kids are not going somewhere dangerous. My husband went to Detroit, Michigan, and he served in like the inner city mission, uh, like his whole his whole mission. He was in the inner city and uh, he's just like a skinny white boy. And Detroit City, the inner city is quite scary, very high crime, you know, people getting mugged and robbed constantly all the time. And when uh, my husband and I went back to Detroit for a football game, like, I don't know, 10 years ago or something um, when the Utes played Michigan and, uh, and he, we drove around and he, he showed me like some of his apartments where he lived and like places where he served. And I was dying. I was like, you've got to be shitting me. I cannot believe you lived in this place, you know? And the, the actual city of Detroit is like almost like a ghost town. It's scary. It's like, people don't walk around. Like, it's not like New York. It's so weird. Anyways, this was like 10 years ago. Maybe it's changed. Maybe it's totally different now. But my personal opinion of Detroit was if my son gets called here, he's not going. Like this is a terrifying place. So needless to say, I had already made that decision. And talking to this woman made me feel so bad for her because she's just trying to be, you know, brave and strong and um, supportive of her son who is on a mission. So now to the news story. So about, oh gosh, I think it's been two weeks, maybe, maybe longer. She posted on her Facebook just a, a little blurb about a, a fellow missionary of her son's that uh, was stabbed. And um, I was like, what? What in the hell? And she included a link to the mother's Facebook page, the mother of the boy who was stabbed. And so I've been kind of following the story and paying attention to it. And one of the things that I've noticed is that not one single, not one single thing has been said about it in the news and not one single thing has been said about it in the ex-Mormon community, which I thought, you know, the ex-Mormon community would just like blow up talking about this. But no, no, I haven't seen one single thing. Maybe you guys have seen stuff, but I have not seen anything. So that's the story I wanted to talk about today because I feel like the church is being so irresponsible by even sending missionaries to this place and to other places that are so dangerous when in fact they're not having great successes in converting members of the church. I mean, their sole purpose, well, I guess it's not their sole purpose, but they I know that the church definitely understands that the main purpose is to further indoctrinate and solidify that missionary in their testimony and to keep them in the church, right? So why would they send them to these horribly dangerous places in the world where they are just putting them at risk, right? So 
the story is, and, and um, actually they never, they've never told the story like in full detail because I don't think they know the full story because the missionary hasn't been able to speak about it yet. So essentially something happened where they were being robbed in their apartment, I believe, and they had been told previously by their mission president that if their apartment is ever being robbed to run out of the apartment and go to the next nearest missionary's apartment, which I don't know. I don't, it just, it blows my mind that they have a plan for when they get robbed and they are not allowed to ever carry or have on them any sort of protections, um, a self protection. I don't even know what the word is. Gosh, I'm like totally drawing a blank, but like, like they can't carry like a knife to, you know, protect themselves if somebody were to attack them, you know, they can't, they can't carry anything like that. So anyways, they run out of the apartment and then, and then they get attacked out on the street, which I don't know if it's by the same people who were trying to rob them. I'm not sure. The story is really convoluted a little bit, but anyways, he gets stabbed. He gets stabbed in the collarbone and it hit an artery and he started bleeding to death. The companion had to like drag slash carry, try to uh, drag him to the nearest member's house. There was a member that lived nearby and uh, they called 911 when they got there. By the time he got to the hospital, he was unconscious. He had lost so much blood. Initially, they thought they may have to amputate his arm because of it. And um, they immediately started reconstruction, reconstructive surgery on his artery and his collarbone. So when my this friend neighbor posted this, I immediately texted her daughter, who who I'm friends with, um, her adult daughter, and and we chat quite a bit. And I just said, "How are you doing? And how is your mom doing? And how is your missionary doing?" She said that her and her mom were freaking out and that they were ready to, you know, jump on a plane and go rescue him immediately. But her brother said, nope, I'm fine. God will protect me. All this kind of stuff. And then I just have to kind of chuckle at that because I'm like, really? God will protect you? So why didn't he protect Elder Fish? Oh, this kid's name is Elder Fish. First name. Oh, my gosh. I totally lost it. I can't remember what his first name is. Anyways. Yeah, I mean, this missionary, so they're taught that they're basically invincible. They're taught that they will be protected on their mission. They're taught that their garments protect them, all of these things. And I don't understand, like, the the dissonance that has to be there when they see a fellow missionary who wasn't protected. I just don't understand it. But what, what ends up happening is that they turn it into a faith-promoting story, right? And they ask for fasting and prayers I went to the mom's Facebook page and, and read all of her posts, and they are really unbelievable. Like, I have I have followed her for the last two weeks just looking at all of her updates. And she is constantly saying things like that God is good and that, you know, this is a testimony of God's love and God's power, that he was able to save her son and that he's doing well. You know, every update, it's... Um, you know, another miracle and, and God is in all the details of our lives. And, you know, I don't want to make fun of her at all. I'm not, I'm not wanting to shame her for the way that she feels, but I really struggle with this idea because I feel like he should not have been in that place 
at that time. He should not have been unprotected. He should not be in such a vulnerable position as the church puts him in. And instead of finding fault in that, they just say how blessed they are by God because he's still alive. Why didn't God stop him from getting stabbed? Why is him living through the attack, the miracle? It would have been a better miracle if he hadn't been, you know, stabbed in the first place. She has talked about the medical professionals being blessed to save him. Okay, this I am going to make fun of. I'm sorry, but I hate this meme. She posted a meme where, like, it's a picture of, like, the medical staff and surgeons around a person on a table, you know, and they're, like, doing surgery. And Jesus is standing behind the main surgeon with his hand on his shoulder and then his other hand, like, on his hand that's working on the person. And it's just so cheesy. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't even. Like, it's it's the stupidest meme. And uh, it just, it kind of drives me crazy. But, you know, I, I do see so often that, like, People give all the credit to God for saving him, and they don't give credit to the medical professionals. So at least there's that. At least at least she is um, giving them credit. But the sad thing is, is this kid is going to have so much trauma from this. He will likely need therapy for the rest of his life. He will probably have PTSD. And how are we diminishing the story to just a faith-promoting story about how he didn't die? And why do we not see that there are people who should be held accountable for this tragedy? I get it that, like, bad things happen everywhere. Shit happens. But when the church puts you in danger and tells you that you will be protected because of your obedience, because you're serving the Lord, yada, 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 right? I mean, these missionaries are willing to give up their very lives for their belief, they are brainwashed. And this isn't even a good cause to sacrifice your life for. Like, this makes me so mad because what happens when this kid finds out the truth about the church? What happens to him when he discovers that the church has lied to him his entire life, that they've brainwashed him? He thinks that he's sacrificing for a noble and great cause. But no, it's like a total waste. He believes that he's saving souls in Colombia, but when he figures out the truth, I just think it's going to be devastating. I mean, if you've had a faith crisis, you know how devastating it is when you learn the truth. But can you imagine, like this is on a whole nother level, whole nother level of trauma when you learn the truth. And I don't think it's if, I think it's when. Um, he's still a young kid, like this will happen. So I'm going to turn now to another story. In August of 2020, there were sister missionaries serving in Houston that got attacked in their part in their apartment. Both got stabbed. One of them was stabbed nine times. This was right after I left the church. And so I clearly remember this story coming out. I was so mad about it. And one of the things I was the most pissed about is that there was an elder from their mission that posted this on Facebook. I'm going to read his post, okay? He says, Hey, everyone, for those of you who don't know, and even for those of you that do know, I'd like to talk about the sisters that got stabbed on, on my mission. They are my friends. I was in training with one of them in my first area for about five months. I know her very, very well, and this has been so hard, just hard. I cannot express the pain this has brought me. Other missionaries 
and both of those sisters and their families. It sounds so foreign and distant until it happens to a friend or brother or sister or daughter. It's very, very real now. I'll say what I know, though, for the express reason that it has built my faith completely and my faith in the Savior has only increased because of this trial. Like he's like he's had a trial, whatever. So the sisters were stabbed in the middle of the night by an invader inside their apartment. I'm still reading his post, by the way. The man came in at 4 a.m., removing his shoes to be quieter and grabbed a knife out of their kitchen. Then he walked into their bedroom and started stabbing them. Both sisters had to go to the hospital because each was stabbed multiple times and they were both in ICU for about a week. And now both are returning home from their missions to heal where they may or may not return to missionary service. Let's talk about that in a minute because that's a whole nother thing. Um, now let me talk about some of the miracles involved though. This is furthering on his post. First, neither missionary was stabbed anywhere their garments covered. It was not touched. One sister did have her garment shirt roll up in the night and she was stabbed in her side. Second, after their parents were notified, their fathers were there three hours after the stabbing. Third, the sister that got stabbed in her side was also stabbed in her hands and feet. One hand was stabbed completely through to the other side. In a very, very literal way, she now has wounds in her hands, feet, and side to match the Savior's. The same sister shared her testimony about how, uh, let's see, how she now feels closer to her Savior than ever before. She feels like she was given this so that she could more fully witness of the suffering the Savior had to go through for each of us. She told us all that she had completely forgiven her attacker, and she was grateful for the miracle that both sisters had been given. Oh my God, there is so many things wrong with that paragraph. I don't even know where to start. It's so gross. Of course, she has completely forgiven them because she has to. But I'm sorry, this girl is never going to be okay. <sighs> okay, keep going on with this post. Her wound in her side was really bad, but she shared with us that in her setting apart blessing, she was blessed that if she was obedient and kept the commandments, she would be safe. And even the very organs of her body would be kept safe. She told us that if the knife in her side had turned one way or the other in any direction, she would have bled to death and they wouldn't have been able to save her. This is another shitty paragraph. I hate these stories. How many times have you heard a story like this where somebody says, the knife went in right, you know, if it had been one centimeter to the left or right, it would have killed her, but she was saved. The other thing that pisses me off about this is that in her blessing, she was told that if she was obedient, she would be protected. So how will she feel? She will blame herself for the attack. She will, she will think that she wasn't obedient enough. Okay, going on with his post. This kid is still talking. Fourth, when the sisters were being attacked, they tried to fight back against him and they prayed. Both sisters remembered praying. But the Hermana that I was friends with recalled saying a prayer, and as soon as she finished, she made eye contact with her attacker and said, stop right now and leave this apartment. After she said that, the attacker dropped the knife, turned around, and walked out of the apartment. <laughs> I mean, just none of this sounds very likely, but whatever, maybe it's true. Um, he says, I witnessed that the power of the ministering of angels is real and the priesthood power is just as acceptable by women acting in faith and righteousness as it is to any worthy man that holds the priesthood. Barf. 
Fifth, when our mission president heard that the sisters were in the hospital, he knew he needed to get there as soon as he possibly could. He called a STL, I don't know what that is, in their apartment complex and asked her to talk with the police and find out which hospital they were admitted to. But since time was of the essence, he and his wife prayed together, got in the car, picked a direction, and started driving, not knowing beforehand where they needed to go. When they got the address of the hospital, they were only two minutes away. Brothers and sisters, I know that these things could only have happened by the power of God. There is no other possible explanation. I am so glad to be in a place where I can witness these things and bring them to you. I testify to each of you that the Lord will make good on his promise and he will always consecrate thine afflictions for thy good. I know that it does not matter where you are and it does not matter who you are. It does not matter what the circumstance is. It does not matter if you think you have fallen out of the reach of God because you haven't. It does not matter if you think that miracles only come sometimes and God is more subtle than bold and real. I'm not sure what that means. It does not matter if you think God is punishing you for some misdeed. It does not matter. I promise you that God will act boldly and he does. God has said, Behold, I am God, and I am a God of miracles, and I will show unto the world that I am the same yesterday, today, and forever, and I work not among the children of men, save it be according to their faith. If you think miracles won't come, then they won't. If you say, Well, that's a cool story, but it doesn't always happen like that, then it definitely won't to you. There's a reason Jesus could do miracles in Nazareth. I know God is real, and he will bring us unto him, and no matter who you are, he will protect you. He will love you, and you will always be safe from harm, as long as you faithfully look to him to rescue you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Just this whole, this whole post, like, feels gross to me. I think I was really angry that, number one, this elder was basically speaking for the sisters. He did not experience the trauma that they went through. And he turned it into a faith-promoting story with his own narrative and acted as if he was the authority on the situation. And that's very troubling to me um, because I think the sisters should have been able to tell their own story, which I'm sure they did at some point. But this kid actually got a bunch of backlash on Facebook. Like, people were pissed about it. People did say, like, how dare you? Um, and he took the post down. So I thought that was interesting. I think that if you, like, you'll see whatever it is you want to see. And when you want something to strengthen your faith, you will find reasons that it strengthens your faith. And my, my problem with all of this is turning someone's trauma into your testimony feels gross. And turning a tragedy into kind of a spectacle for the world to say, look what happened to these girls. And now, now she knows exactly what it feels like to be Jesus. And it just feels so gross and um, insincere. He has no clue the trauma that these sisters have suffered. And there's this way of like diminishing someone else's suffering and even our own suffering when we want to make it a faith-promoting story, when we want to believe that God saved us, we will diminish our own suffering and everyone else's suffering. It's so gross. Why do we do this? Why do people in the church do, do this? Isn't our suffering important? Isn't it legitimate? Like, 
Are we supposed to just get over it and give the glory to God that he saved us? This kid is just, you know, a white, privileged, ignorant kid. It's just total bullshit. Total bullshit. That he can sit back and say, oh, listen to this beautiful story. It's so great. And I don't know what ended up happening to those sisters. I believe at the time, well, okay, I, I do know a little bit. So I know that the sister who received the nine stab wounds, she, you know, was in the hospital for a week or so. She did return home to heal. And then she received a new mission call and uh, finished out the rest of her mission because I think she had only been in her mission for like five or six months at the time that it happened. And she went and finished her mission. And I just wonder, I guess, you know, maybe she wasn't suffering from PTSD on her mission. Maybe the brainwashing, you know, of belief that God was good and saved her and all those things. I mean, maybe it really worked and maybe that did save her and make it possible for her to be able to serve the rest of her mission. I don't know. But like, again, like what happens when she finds out the truth and she realizes like, what? Ugh, just It's just gross. And I have heard so many other stories of people who have been had way traumatic experiences on their mission, have been put in dangerous situations, have had terrible health scares, and have had permanent handicaps because of situations that happened on their mission. Um, when I was on my mission, I know that an elder had to have his appendix out and our mission president, bless his heart, I loved my mission president, but he was actually angry that when we took him to the hospital that the doctor took his appendix out because he said it was unnecessary. So I have to wonder, like, what the church, you know, does, like, are they just, like, nickel and diming these sta- these mission presidents and saying, like, don't let missionaries, you know, get medical care that if it's not absolutely necessary. The other thing I saw was a few, maybe a month ago, a missionary had been hit while riding his bike, hit by a car, I think in Virginia. And the family had posted a GoFundMe account on Facebook. And I literally was like, what the fuck? Like, are they having to pay his his medical expenses? Like, I don't know what the story is behind that. I'd be interested if anybody knows more about that story. I actually didn't look into it. But I'm like, what is happening? Like, please tell me that the church is paying for medical expenses for these people when they get injured. Hopefully. Who knows? But one other story I wanted to tell real quick was back in 1988, I was a kid. Uh, a missionary was serving in my ward in Michigan, where my husband served, and he was killed in a car accident. Him and his companion, both of them, killed in a car accident. It was so sad. I remember people talking about how, you know, tragic it was that he wasn't saved on his mission, that God allowed him to die. But then I would hear people kind of whispering about how maybe he was breaking the rules. Maybe he wasn't being a faithful missionary, so the Lord didn't protect him and his companion. I mean, I have no idea. No one knows whether or not he was being an obedient missionary. But the fact that it would even be talked about is so gross. The fact that we believe in a God who would allow his children to be killed because they weren't following his mission rules is so gross. Like, how do we not see this? How do we not see it? 
Um, I want to share a post that was really, really beautiful, written by Wendy Wilcock Jensen. She is from Empowered Former LDS. She's an author and a blogger, I believe. Anyways, you can look her up. She's a beautiful writer, and I and I asked her permission to share this on my podcast, and of course she gave it to me. In fact, I think I'm going to have her as a guest very soon. So, But this kind of goes along with what I'm talking about, about this idea about God choosing who he's going to save and not save and you know, whether you're being obedient enough to be saved and this kind of stuff. And her this post is titled, Why I Will Never Be Christian. She says, <clears throat> It should soothe my soul to know that I have a Savior who died for my sins and that through the love he performed on the cross, he will redeem me from a fiery and eternal hell, from a Satan who desires to destroy my happiness at all costs. But first... I must believe in a God that will deliver infinite punishment for my finite sins. I must believe in a God who aligns with human sacrifice, blood oaths, and flesh for redemption. I must believe so fully in Satan that I keep him alive and tormenting my own mind through the power of shame. The sole reason for my good and moral behavior would have to be that I fear I will be consumed by the devil as punishment from my God. And I must first believe that this story represents love. What if instead I wake up and claim my sovereignty and shake the ancient programming and see something far more beautiful, far more hopeful, and far more meaningful than that story? What if I choose out and don't allow that narrative to control my worldview? Then, from the Christians, I would be shunned, called a blasphemer, an apostate, deceived, and I would again have to believe that that is love. When I started to experience real love, my soul began to rest. I experienced an inner peace I could not establish through this religious story. I became more curious and interested in this grand thing we call life. I am no longer afraid of those stories. They have no power over me. I have become good for goodness sake and because love is who I am. What they didn't want me to know is that I have the power to destroy the devil by deconstructing the stories I was told about God. What if I'm no longer afraid? What if no longer being afraid is what makes you free? Once you've tasted freedom from religion, why would you ever go back? I will not be Christian because in order to be Christian, you must first be afraid. And people who are afraid are easily controlled. That is so beautiful. I just, I'm in awe about the way she writes so beautifully and that so beautifully encapsulates my feelings on this matter in that like, I just cannot believe in that story anymore. And in order to believe in that story, you have to be afraid. Oh, I just thought it was so beautiful. I immediately reached out to her and just said, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like, I freaking love it. Can I share it? And she said, yes. I think this goes back to this whole idea of these missionaries and how they turn it into a faith-promoting story. And it's just, when they, when they try to say that like, oh, they were saved because they were obedient 
And then, oh, like going back to the missionary who died, right? So when they're whispering about maybe he, he was killed because he wasn't being obedient, right? Maybe he wasn't following the mission rules. Maybe they were out too late. How gross and how horrible of a God do you have to believe in to believe that because they, you know, disobeyed a curfew that God would allow them to die? What? I'm sorry, but that brings me no peace, no comfort whatsoever. That makes me feel incredibly gross about God. Because imagine, again, we have been taught our whole lives that God is our father. And if you are a parent, imagine that you would be willing to let your child die because they broke your rule. That's not a loving parent. That's, I don't think a parent is even capable of that. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. And then, you know, of course, they could also spin it the other way. All all signs point to faith, right? Because they could spin it the other way and they could say, well, it was just, he was so righteous that God needed him to be a missionary in heaven, right? Like God needed him. That's why. They can always pin the responsibility wherever they want to, right? If they aren't able to pin the responsibility on the missionary, they will tell themselves that it was God's plan. That we don't understand why, but God has a purpose for all suffering. And that this person was supposed to be attacked and stabbed or killed in a car accident in order to learn something from it. (laughs) Or in order to bring others to Christ. Like it, you know, like that elder who wrote that Facebook post. Oh, it just strengthened my testimony. Oh, good for you. Good for freaking you. It was a testimony builder for you. I mean, it's just. The, one of the grossest beliefs in the church and in, and in Christianity in general, right? So I went back and I, I looked this morning at, you know, the updates on Elder Fish's story. And um, I guess in the last, I don't know, several days or week, they have transferred him to a hospital in the U.S., but not in their hometown, which I thought was kind of interesting. I'm not sure why he didn't go to his hometown, except maybe, you know, they took him to a better hospital, you know, out outside of his hometown. I don't know. But she wasn't able to say where they were in her post. She, like, very clearly was not saying which hospital they were in or, you know, even what city or state they were in. Uh, she just said they were stateside. But he has terrible infection, and they have to do multiple more surgeries to clear the infection. He's already had two extra surgeries after the initial surgeries to repair his artery and his uh, collarbone. And he's going to have at least one more. His chest has a giant scar, like down the middle, like he had open heart surgery. But like, I don't understand why if that's, I, I don't totally understand because there's a separate scar, giant scar on his collarbone. So I'm just looking at the pictures and she's not going into a lot of detail. Uh, she's just saying, you know, minor details. But bless her heart, she is really, really leaning on God right now. Like the majority of her posts are scripture references, quotes, things that are, you know, bringing her hope and peace. And I don't want to shame her for the way she's dealing with this tragedy because that's the best way she knows how to deal with this tragedy. And she's trying to do it in the best possible way for her. Just, I mean, she's literally in survival mode, right? And, and I understand that because I would have been the same way 
had I been in the church. But I do have to wonder if after this is all over and she's had time to step back and really reflect on this situation, if she will feel the same way. I'm glad that people have something to hold them up and give them that that hope in during tragedy and life crises. But I also feel like it's all for nothing. It also makes me really sad. Like, like it's a little bit pointless. Like, I mean, I guess it makes them feel better, but maybe that's only temporary. I don't know. What do you guys think? I, I genuinely would like to know people's thoughts and feelings about this because I know that you have to leave space for people to grieve and go through their suffering in the way that they need to go through it. And I have never experienced something like this. So I can't, I'm not judging her for how she's going through it. But what I'm feeling is just a deep sense of sadness for what I used to believe and what I no longer believe. And that I feel like there was harm in that belief that it actually harmed me. And I feel like it's also harming them and the church is responsible and they aren't being held responsible. And this is just another example of them not really caring about the members. They care about their numbers. They care about their money. They care about their, like the world's perception of them and how successful they are. And when it comes to individual members, I just really don't think they're just collateral damage. I, I really think that they don't give a shit. And they know that they are liars. They know that what they are teaching is false. They know they don't have the priesthood. They know they don't have God's power. They know they don't speak for God. So why do they keep up this charade? Why do they keep it up? And how do they justify the harm that they are doing? It just makes me so, so, so sad. So I am, <clears throat> I, I currently have like, I don't know, five or six of my Sunday school kids on missions. And I've had many young women and other Sunday school kids that have already served. And I'm not a fan of the missionary program. I'll just say it. I am not a fan. I think it is run horribly. I think it is a brainwashing experience. I look back at my missionary journals and I see that I was constantly striving and trying so hard to be perfect and it was never good enough. And I just kept saying things in my journal like, you know, today was really hard and I, I'm struggling so much, but if I just keep praying and if I just keep reading my scriptures and just keep following the rules and being an obedient sister, I will be blessed. I know I'll be blessed. And I know the Lord is here with me and he's watching me and he's, he's blessing me every single day. And sometimes I don't notice the blessings. Guess what? I didn't notice the blessings because I was, it was a soul crushing experience, literally soul crushing. This past week, my sister reached out to me who's still fully in the church and her daughter has been thinking about going on a mission. She's been kind of waffling because she's dating a guy that she really likes and he's already returned from his mission and she's only 18. And I thought it was so interesting. You know, my sister reached out to me and just kind of like wanted some advice, I guess, and was kind of 
thinking like, hey, you served a mission. What would you say about it? And I told her the truth. I said it was absolutely soul crushing. And nobody will ever tell you the truth how hard about how hard missions are. But the, the part that I thought was really interesting was that this niece of mine thinks that she only has two options. She either needs to serve a mission or get married. Why? Why is that her only two options? I'll tell you why. Because of the law of chastity. If she's dating somebody and she doesn't hurry and get married, they're going to screw up and they're going to have sex. And then they won't be able to get married in the temple. They'll disappoint everybody. They'll be shamed horribly. And so they're going to rush into a marriage when they're, you know, she's 18 and he's 21, maybe. I don't even know if he's 21 yet. He just got home from his mission six months ago. They started dating about two weeks after his mission. This is her very first boyfriend. Very first boyfriend. I don't know about him, if he's dated anybody else before his mission. But it just blows me away how young and inexperienced and immature they are. But they have to make this decision. Like, well, we either have to get married or I have to leave. Ew. Just makes me sad. It makes me sad. And I think it's gross. And gross is the word of the day. Apparently. I'm pretty sure I've said it like 50 times. <laughs> so that's all I have for you today. I wanted to share that story because I haven't heard it talked about anywhere else. And I think it's important to talk about. I think it's important that we call the church out on their bullshit and call them out for their responsibility in putting missionaries in danger, in not making sure that they are safe from harm. And I will reiterate again that I know that shit can happen wherever they are. They could get robbed. They could get stabbed. They could get hit by a car in their hometown, in their very own beds at night. I get that. So I'm not saying that, but I am saying these missionaries are going on missions under false pretenses, believing that they will be protected by the church and by God. And that's just not the case. And the church is, I, I feel they are being incredibly irresponsible by even allowing them in these spaces. And this has been going on for generations. I can tell you, I have a, a close friend who served somewhere in South America who had some horrible medical emergency like a month into his mission. He didn't speak English, he didn't speak Spanish very well. He was rushed to the hospital and left there and like did not know what was going on. And and his mission president didn't know what was going on. He basically got lost. Like his mission president didn't know where he was and he never reached out to his parents. And his parents didn't know what was going on for like a month, you guys. This was probably 30, 40 years ago. Shit like this happens. People, I also know somebody who's permanently disabled from her mission. From experiences that she had on her mission. That she did not get the medical care that she needed. So, yeah, that can happen in real regular life. But because it happened on a mission, the church is responsible. I'm sorry. I think that that's not out of line to hold them responsible for these things. And again, I think it's all gross. Maybe I'll just call the title of this episode gross. 
Anyways, thank you for listening to my rant. I I would really love to hear your thoughts and feelings about this topic. And like if you have any stories about your missions or people that you know that served missions that had things happen to them, I would be very curious to know how you feel about that. And I would be very curious to know um, how my listeners feel about God and Jesus being in charge and choosing who he saves or not saves. Um, Because I know some people do hold on to belief in God and Jesus after they leave the church, but I think that's definitely a more rare um, case. I think for the most part, the vast majority of people leave all of it behind. So I would be very curious. I want to know how people feel and if there are ways in which you are able to make sense of it just to explain why this happens. Because for me, it just gives me more anxiety to think that God is in charge of all this and that he allows things to happen. I understand. I don't think that life should be all roses and that suffering is just a natural part of life. So it's not, it's not that I have a problem with suffering because suffering is just because life is shit. Sometimes the problem I have is when we put suffering, when we, when we tie it to God, when we created this God to make us feel better about our suffering. I don't know how. How how does that make people feel better? It does, but it doesn't make sense when you when you like roll it all out and explain it in the way that that I've just explained it. Like to me, it's just ridiculous, right? So, anyways, that's the end of my of my rant about this, but I do I would love anybody who wants to share stories, message me, comment on the episodes or reach out to me on Instagram. Um, I have the distant daughters Instagram page, but I'm, I'll just be honest and say, I have given up. I am not posting there anymore, but I do still check it. So if you message me there, I will get your message, but yeah, I'm, I'm terrible at social media. You guys, I, I think I'm giving up on social media altogether, even in my, just my personal life, because it's, it's just, it's more work than, than I can handle. I just, it, it's not serving me. I'll just say that. And, um, I don't know how to use Instagram (laughs) and it's too much stress to try and figure it out. So, um, so I'm sorry to any of you that are following me. I have very few followers, but there's a few of you. So thank you. Um, but also, you know, yeah, I never post anything. I haven't posted anything in months. So I'm very boring. I'm a boring person to follow. But hopefully you enjoy the podcast and I appreciate it so much. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy this content and it's been helpful for you, don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast. Leave us a review if you love us. And finally, if you can, I would really appreciate financial support in this work. You can go to dissidentdaughters.org or mormondiscussionpodcast.org and choose Dissident Daughters in the drop-down menu when you go to set up your donation. You can do a one-time donation, of course, but better yet, set up a monthly donation of even just five bucks. If you've left the church recently, you've probably experienced a 10% income increase. (laughs) And here's a place where you can donate and know that you're supporting a fellow dissident daughter who wants to stick around and keep providing a supportive space for deconstructing our faith together. Thanks for all your support.